All right, cool. Hey, my name is Jerry, one of the pastors here, uh, and it is my joy to open God's Word with you this morning. Today is our last message in this series that we've been doing called How to Be Happy. And this series has gone 13 weeks, and we've uh, together dove into the book of Philippians as the overriding theme is how to have joy in your life no matter what the circumstances. And I really hope that uh, you have been impacted by this as much as we have as a staff diving in, studying, preparing, and delivering messages. I hope that you guys have really been impacted by the Spirit of God with this particular book. Man, I would encourage you if you have just started coming, or maybe I, uh, I've met several already that are just first-time visitors today, uh, to go ahead and go online or uh, on your podcast app. On your phone, you can download all the messages, kind of catch up um, to speed, um, because it's been a very fruitful time here in Philippians. So we've been working on a definition of happiness or true joy that says this, true joy is the supernatural satisfaction in the person, the purposes, and in the people of Jesus. And to really whittle down something very complicated and it's taken 13 weeks to get here, if we could really just whittle it down, what we're talking about is that true joy is not based on circumstances, but it's based on God's supernatural divine plan and his strength within you. So I just want to really briefly go through a little bit of a Cliff Notes version uh, of just reviewing kind of some of the stuff that we've been talking about in this incredible book. In chapter 1, we centered around the idea that God is not done with us yet. And that's something that we can all be very happy about, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, let me tell you why I'm confident. I'm confident because he that started a work in you will be faithful to complete it. So it's not, how can I make myself better? Man, self-improvement, how can I improve this and improve that? It's, hey, how can I give more and more, yield more and more of my life over to Jesus so that he can continue working in me? And man, it's so freeing to understand that we can have grace with each other knowing that nobody has arrived yet and we're all still a work in progress. In chapter one, he also talked about how to be happy even in the midst of suffering. You'll remember that Paul was writing this whole entire letter to this church in Philippi from a prison cell. He was literally chained up. And Paul said in chapter 1, I want you to know that these chains actually have served to advance the gospel. And that by itself is an unbelievable concept to hold on to that says, wait, hold on. The fact that Paul, a guy who is so zealous and so passionate and so talented and so on fire and was going around starting churches everywhere he went, communicating with people in the marketplace, winning people to Christ, he was being so effective and yet God's plan for him was to now be chained and isolated in a prison cell. But Paul says, hey, you know what? It's okay. These chains have actually proved to advance the gospel. The fact that my wrists are chained did, in fact, release the power of the Spirit of God. Why? Because when you're in tribulation, when you're in trials, when you're suffering, when you could be discouraged, the world is watching. 
And Paul had a platform now with this guard he was chained to, with the other people that would come in and out with Caesar, all of a sudden, because what's this guy going to do? How's he going to react? What's going to be going on now? All of a sudden, he's got an audience of people, whereas if Paul was just doing everything straight and narrow and everything was fine, he probably wouldn't have even had that audience. That's a concept for us this morning. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what circumstances didn't pan out the way you wanted them to pan out, God is saying, you know what, I know that it's tough where you are, but that may actually advance the gospel more than what you think your life should be. Later on in chapter 1, Paul gives us this phrase, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love life down here, Paul's saying, but you know what, I would love to be with Jesus so much more, that would be so much better. But man, for your sake, God's allowed me to live another day. And Paul says in chapter 1, for me to live is fruitful labor. So you think about the fruits of the Spirit being love and joy and peace. And Paul's saying, all right, in order to show you love, I'm going to have to experience some, some negativity and some hatred. That's the only way this fruit of love is going to be shown. In order to show you joy, there's going to be some real hard things that are coming down the line in my life. But that's okay because that gives me an opportunity to show you that fruit incredible. In chapter 2, first couple of verses there, we spent two weeks on that, uh, and it's about just being happy to serve each other, this whole idea about you in front of me. If there be any encouragement, if there be any, um, you know, reconciliation, you know, have the same mindset in you that Jesus had. And man, in our families and in this church and among friendships and among interactions with neighbors, if we could just nail this down that says, you know what, I want to have the same attitude Jesus did. He didn't hold on to his position. He lowered himself. He became a servant to be a great example to us and to show us the deepest level of love. Unbelievable. Later on in chapter 2, it talks about shiny, happy people. Do you remember that one? Were you there for that? Talking about how the darker the atmosphere gets, the more the stars shine. And no matter what your circumstance, and again, Paul, writing this from prison, he's got quite a platform and some credibility to say, yeah, it's dark here, but guess what? God's allowing me to shine. And that awesome verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, that says, do everything without complaining and grumbling so that you can prove yourself to be holy and righteous, shining like stars in the universe. So easy for us to be self-centered and to be negative and to live in that world of grumbling and complaining. That's not how we have true joy. Chapter 3, he talks about how knowing Jesus is the greatest thing. We could have all these different accolades and all these different titles, but all of that pales in comparison. As a matter of fact, it reeks and smells putrid in comparison to just knowing Jesus Christ. And participating in his sufferings and, oh, so unbelievable. I could preach the whole time just on like the cliff notes. You know what I'm saying? So rich, so full. This book has been incredible. Paul talks in chapter 3 as well about being happy even in exhaustion. Right? He says, I press on towards the mark, forgetting what is behind. Both the bad things that I've done but also not relying on the good things that have happened, not living in the past, not, man, it was so great back there, but instead pressing on, God, what do you have for me today? What can I do for you today? What kind of stories are you going to write through my life today? Credible. He says, my citizenship's in heaven, and that's what I'm working for. That's what I'm living for. In chapter four, we talked about the bickering and fighting ladies. Talk about a cat fight. 
We had one there in Philippians chapter 4. Check it out. (laughs) Women were just mean to each other. And it was affecting everybody. It was affecting the whole entire church. And it wasn't right. And these were prominent women that Paul knew, that Paul loved, that Paul worked with, but yet they just couldn't get it together. And so Paul says, you know what? That happens in a family. That happens in a church family. And there's a right way to deal with it. There's a right way to deal with conflict. And Paul lays that out so beautifully there. And then last week we talked about how the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let all of those requests be known to God. And the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and guard your mind until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, it's been such a feast, and I hope that you feel that, and I hope that you've been diving into that with us. Well, today we're just going to end up here and kind of put a little bow on, on the book of Philippians with this last passage, but it's, it's not one that's all roses and daisies and sunshine. It's powerful and it's challenging, um, and I'm excited to dive into that with you here this morning. This last little section is about money. Anybody want to talk about money? Money, 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 money? Yeah, we all kind of tense up like, oh boy, here we go again. You know, it's funny, but Scripture talks a lot about resources and finance, 800 times, as a matter of fact, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it mentions that realm. Jesus and everything that he said, about 25%, one quarter of what Jesus talked about had to do with money and treasure and resources. So imagine if we did that as a church. Imagine if we patterned after Jesus and said, once a month, uh, from here on out, we're going to have a message all about money. Probably wouldn't be a very positive thing, right? Why is that? Well, it's because we're suspicious. It's because we've been burned, right? We've seen these televangelists. We've seen them. We've heard the stories. Uh, Maybe some of you have been involved in churches where there was misappropriation of funds or like some place where, you know, the pastor was always trying to guilt you into giving more money and they misused it or they stole it or they squandered it. And we've seen these shysters on TV and on 2020 exposés and everything else about these guys are totally fake. They're totally lying. They're preying on the poor and the gullible to get more money, to get your money. But Paul here lays out for us something so incredible that says, you know what? We do need to talk about finances and resources here because God gave that to you for a reason and for a purpose. And the whole entire purpose of this letter of Philippians is a thank you note for money that they gave. That's important for us to recognize. Every book has a context and a history and a purpose for writing. And the purpose for Paul's writing this book is because they shared their resources with him. I'm quick to remind you that in the Old Testament, uh, when you talk about finances and money, there was a strict expectation on the people of Israel, God's people. It was prescribed. You had to do this. This was the law. Okay, we've heard about a tithe before. Many of you have are giving, committed to a tithe to the church. That literally means 10%. And that was part of the law in the Old Testament, but it goes much deeper than that. There was actually several different tithes, as well as some different festivals and offerings throughout the course of the year. So really, if you're going to play that game and go that route in the Old Testament, it was about 25% of their 
resources were given back to God. It's a lot. In the New Testament, we're no longer bound by that. The law has now been fulfilled in Jesus, and we've got what's called grace giving, which means it's between you and it's between God. What are you going to put on my heart that I should give back to you? And it's different for every person. But we do know from Scripture that there are four key characteristics to this grace giving. And I want you to look at each one of these words carefully. First of all, it needs to be sacrificial. It needs to actually be something that can be felt. It's kind of like, you know, if if you make a very generous living and you were to kind of take 10% of that and, and give that back to God, the reality is you may not even feel that in the in the way that you live your life at that level. Okay, but it could be if you're a single mom or if you're just starting out or trying to scrape things together and things are really difficult, 10% might be too much. Maybe we should be the ones as a church helping you and giving to you. That's the principle. So there's no prescription. It's more of a principle of grace giving. It needs to be cheerful. We've heard that before, right? God loves a cheerful giver, not begrudgingly, not, hey, you know what? I worked hard for this money. I'm not going to give it It needs to be generous, and it needs to be proportional. All right, I want to throw this concept out to all you guys, even as part of this introduction, even some of you young people. It needs to be proportional. Okay, so what I'm saying is, and it needs to be generous, what I'm saying is you don't need to be wealthy in order to be generous. You remember what Jesus talked about in the narrative where there was the widow that just came in and only had just a couple of pennies that dropped in, and then there were these other wealthy people that gave tons and tons of money, but they were looking for all the glory, and they weren't really generous because that didn't really impact them proportionately. But she had so little, and yet she was willing to give that, and God blessed her as a result of it. Huge concept. So as we get ready to dive in here to what Paul's going to tell us, we need to recognize that the church of Philippi is one that he held up as the example of a generous church. And the main message this morning is about how do we become content with what God has already given us? What is the secret to contentedness? And so what we've got here in this passage is four quick principles that, that we see here in the life of Paul in this letter, and we just want to break those out for you. So the very first one that we want to talk about, how do we become more content? The very first one is, says that we are confident, Paul was confident in God's provision. Paul was confident in God's provision. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 10, Philippians chapter 4. Here's what it said. Paul said, I rejoiced, there's that word again, right? 15, 16 times all throughout this book. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, Paul's saying, finally, at last, this gift has come. You finally were able to have the opportunity to give this gift for me. And I want to tell you, I am rejoicing because I knew that God had this. I know that he's in control and I've been wanting and I've been in need and I've been praying and I've been relying. And finally, at last, I can see that God's provision has come to fruition. And that is a huge concept for us. The Philippian church understood what it meant to be a giving church. Now you can write this down in your notes, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Um, Here's what the Philippian church was like. This is important. 
Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where Philippi was one of those churches. It says this, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and yet beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this relief of the saints. Do you see what's going on there? Paul saying this church of Philippi was so poor. They were broken and they were broke and they didn't have a whole lot. And yet finally they were able to scrape up enough where they could survive and it says they were begging for the opportunity to share generously even out of their poverty. Unbelievable. When you understand the principle of stewardship like the church at Philippi did, you'll see that your generosity could be God's provision to somebody else. Did you catch that? Your willingness to give could be the answer of a prayer to somebody else. You know, as a, as a pastor, one of the perks, or even just as a human being, one of the perks of having friends who are generous, and you've been here, I'm sure, as well, is that at times they will uh, give you a call or shoot you a text and say, hey, you know what, I've got tickets to the, uh, to the game this weekend, but something came up and I can't go. Would you be interested in taking your son or taking your family to go see you know, UNC basketball or you know, NC State football or the Hurricanes or whatever? Right? You've been there, uh, the recipient of something like that? Those are awesome messages to get. Oh, man, you are so great. Thank you for thinking of us. That'll be a great family night. Man, thank you for your generosity. And I've experienced that several times. But you know what's almost even better is when you get somebody who says, hey, I got tickets for Friday night or Saturday night or Saturday's game, and I can't go, but I'm wondering if you or anybody else you know could use them. Because that kind of changes things a little bit, right? It's not just, oh, I, I love you and want to bless you and your family, but it's, I'm now giving the power to you to go bless somebody else. You see that? You get to play Santa Claus. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's a great thing to do. And I'm like, this is so great. You know what? Maybe I could go Friday night, but hey, you know what? I think there's somebody else that could enjoy it more. Maybe they've never been to a game. Maybe they've had a rough week. Maybe they need that father-son connectivity. I want to pour into their life. And thank you for releasing that permission to now be the gift giver um, and, and bless somebody else. So I'll call somebody or I'll text somebody or, hey, you know what, I got these tickets and, and I, and I want to know if you and your sons want to go or if you guys want to go as a family, completely free of charge. And there's so much joy that happens when we can give like that, right? And the response is overwhelming. Holy cow, that's so great. Thank you so much. You are so kind. And this is the greatest part where I'm like, hey, you know what, I know I gave them to you, but you don't really need to thank me because somebody else gave them to me. I'm just passing it along. You see the difference? And when we understand grace giving and stewardship, you'll see the same thing is true. If we think about the book of James chapter 1 that says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Everything that we have is God's. All the resources, all the finances, all the other possessions that we have was actually given to us by him 
So in doing that, we get the chance to impact and give to somebody else like this church at Philippi did. And the same thing happens when when you've been involved in that and you're generous and you help somebody. God puts it on your heart. They're like, thank you so much. You are so kind. I can't believe you did that. That's so wonderful. You can have that glorious same response, can't you? Hey, you know what? It's not mine anyway. God gave it to me to give to you. Just like that illustration of tickets. And that's what the church of Philippi was saying to Paul. We were begging and pleading and anxious and finally with joy we can give to you and share to you what God gave to us. Incredible. Continue on in verse 10. I want you to underline a word. See that word revive right there? Finally you had the opportunity to revive your concern for me. It's an incredible word. It's actually a horticultural term. I don't know if there's any people with green thumbs here and you love gardening and landscaping and all that stuff that that really bothers me. But that's the term. And revive means it's a plant or it's a bush or it's a flower that hasn't had enough water and it's essentially dying and it's almost dead. It's dormant. It's withered. And finally, the showers come, or the sunshine comes, or the weeds are moved out, or something's pruned, something happens, and all of a sudden, that flower comes back, and blooms, and flourishes. And Paul is saying, you know what? Here's what happened. I was dying on the vine, I was withered, and yet this reviving that's taken place because of your gift allowed me to now literally come back to life. And I want you to think about that in the context of giving and sharing with other people, being God's provision to somebody that's in need. I challenged our people in the first hour to go home and make a list, but go home and make a list, one to ten. And I want you to think about this last year. And I want you to think about who are the names of the people or the families or the missionaries that I heard from God impress upon my spirit. You need to be a blessing to them. And I gave them something. Could you fill up that list? Looking around in this crowd, I know so many of you. And and God has blessed our church with, with so many sharing, giving, amazing people that I think for some that wouldn't be a problem at all. Not to boast, but yeah, them, 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 yeah, okay, good, glory be to God. But then for some, I wonder if you really looked at that list hard and you're like, man, uh, there must be someone, something. It's a sobering thought. But giving is huge. And Paul was full of accolades for this church, and we got to Keep on rocking um, here. So let's go to number two. What else? How do we know that he's content? Number two, he's satisfied with little. He's satisfied with little. Go ahead and read verse 11. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, underline that one as well, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Man, for us as parents, and even if I'm honest, when I look in the mirror, I'm like, why can't I just be content? It's almost like gravity. It's something that you just can't avoid. You can't get away from. It happens, and it's there, and it draws you. And it's like discontentedness and always wanting more. Like, and, and I feel that for my kids and for myself and for our culture. 
But it's like the whole world is drawing you in. You need something bigger. You need something better. Uh, That was okay. But a year later, now you need this. Now you need this. Now you need this. And Paul's saying, you know what? I've learned. I've had to learn it, but I've learned the secret of being content. And that phrase right there, the secret, is is really cool. It's kind of like an initiation phrase used in some of the cults uh, in that time 2,000 years ago to even get into their secret meetings He's got kind of a shady past, but Paul kind of redeems the word. I know the answer. I know the secret to have you get into this higher echelon club of satisfied, contented people. And it is to obey what scripture says and check out these verses. We see this all over, this idea of being content and this idea of understanding what you have and being thankful for it. John the Baptist in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 14, says this. He's talking to soldiers. What does he say? Soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do violence to no man, neither accuse anyone falsely. Oh, and by the way, be content with your wages. I know you always want more and more and more, but be content. Next one, Paul talks here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Paul says, hey, you know what? If we have food and if we have clothing, with this and this alone, we should be satisfied. This should be enough for us. Later on, he says this in Hebrews 13, verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says, here's my challenge to you. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And finally, Paul in challenging a young pastor, Timothy says this, godliness with contentment is of great gain. For any of us, when we're looking at our bottom line and we're looking at our bank book and looking at our investments, we're like, all right, what's, what's gonna get me the most gain? And Paul's saying to Timothy, you know what? If you're godly, if you spend your time and your resources trying to please Jesus and be a good steward and you're content with what you have, That's going to be the greatest gain and the greatest joy that you've ever experienced. So what does this look like? Number three, contentedness. How are we content? Paul was strengthened by divine power. He breaks it down for us a little bit more here in these next two verses. Start reading in verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, there it is, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Paul, as he's done many other times, gives us a glimpse into his life with credibility, saying, you know what, guys? I've experienced both spectrums. Early on, he was from a prominent family. He was very successful. Then he met Jesus, right, on on the Damascus Road. And then everything changed for him. And I can't wait to, uh, in the fall, when we dive into the book of Acts, we'll be getting into Paul's life a little bit more and everything that he experienced. But man, he went through the ringer imprisoned several times. Uh, you know, there's several different passages where he quotes all these different things of what happened to him, shipwrecked several times, beaten with rods. One time he was dragged out of the city and left for dead. So everybody thought that he was dead. I mean, just imagine that. Let that sink in for a second. And you can imagine Paul, like he's sitting there and he's, you know, saying this and writing this stuff down and like he's probably looking at a bunch of different scars. Oh yeah, I remember that one. That was from the shipwreck. That was from the mast over there where that hit me. And oh yeah, my back still got scars from Like he's saying, I have been through it all. There's so often where I had absolutely nothing, barely even the clothes on my back. But it's in the context of that 
That's Paul says, because I've seen God provide for me over and over and over again, I can say with confidence that it is his divine power that allowed me to do it. Okay, and you think about this, uh, this verse that's so popular, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see that one on athletes all the time, right? Uh, writing it on their sneaker or like, that's my life verse, you know? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's like, I can dunk a basketball or I can run a four-minute mile or I can, you know, do whatever. And it's almost like this mentality of like, it's going to create a Superman in you. Like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's not what the verse is saying. In the context, Paul is saying, because I've experienced a lot and because I've been all the way down in the depths, I can understand that in every circumstance, God can allow me to make a difference, no matter what. It's an incredible thought for us this morning. I guess the the last thing that we need to dive into here, point number four, what we see in Paul is he was generous in thinking about others. Generous in thinking about others. Follow along in verse 14. This is the end of Paul's letter. Here's what he says, yet it was so kind of you to share in my trouble. Financially, that's what he's referencing. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. This poor church, remember. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift... He's thinking about others, he says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul saying, not in any coercive kind of way, because how easy could that have been uh, for him to do that? And how many times have we seen that or sensed that in people that are talking about money? But he says, honestly and sincerely from his heart, you know what? Thank you for this gift. And I was seeking help from you. Why? For myself? Well, not really. I was more seeking that you would be rewarded because of your partnership, because that's how this stewardship thing works. Check out these passages of scripture. Luke 6, 38. This is Jesus talking. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. How's that for an awesome word picture? For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is Jesus talking. So just imagine a giant stack of bills and you are freely giving to people that have need. Jesus is basically saying that's the kind of attitude you have with resources. Guess what? Have a seat. Get your lap ready because it's coming down. Now it's really important that we understand what we're not talking about is the prosperity gospel. That's much different. That's in churches that say, hey, you know what? God wants to bless you tenfold, and right now for the next 10 minutes, if you throw down $1,000 of seed money and send it to our church, God's gonna give you $10,000, you know, and it's putting God to the test, and it's selfish, and it's not right. That's not what we're talking about. 
But what we are talking about is being the kind of stewards that give freely and see God give to them in return. You cannot outgive God. One last illustration that I want to use with you that, that really hits home for many of us as we think about it. Uh, my kids are definitely old enough um, to go to the store, send them on a little errand or something like that, ride their bike up to the Walgreens, and a few years back, you know, we, we began that process of responsibility. And what would have happened if I took one of my kids and gave them 20 bucks, said, okay, hey, we need some milk, we need some eggs, we need some flour. Uh, can you go get that? Okay, cool. And because I love you, you can, you can get a little something for yourself as well. So grab yourself a candy bar, a soda, or whatever. So what would happen if a half an hour later they came back and there's a couple of Twinkies in there, a couple of Snickers bars, there's a, a toy and a, a couple of lollipops. Hey, where's the milk? Where's the eggs? Oh, I didn't get it. Uh, you didn't give me enough money. Well, because I'm very generous, I give them another 20 bill. Let's go again, do the same thing. They come back a half an hour later. This time they've got a fidget spinner and they've got some uh, ingredients for slime. That's how things are rocking in my house. And there's still no milk and no eggs and no flour. What's going on? I didn't have enough money. Finally, third time, I throw down a 20. They go, they come back. They got one gallon of milk and then a bunch more Snickers and Twinkies and everything else. 60 bucks for one gallon of milk. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be for me as a parent? Yeah, it would be really frustrating. And when I say, why didn't you do this? I didn't have enough money. But when you really think about it, in our relationship to God, and this idea of stewardship giving, is that not kind of the same thing? God's given us so much over and over and over again and given us opportunities to give some of it back, but instead we're robbing the vast majority of it and we turn into bratty little kids that say, well, I would give, I would do, but you didn't give me enough money. If you could just give me a little more, then I will do what you want. Powerful and it's convicting, but it's the truth. Notice the language of worship that we see here in verse 18. He says, this gift that you gave so generously, says towards the bottom, uh, you gave it to Epaphroditus. Love that guy and so overwhelmed. You know what that gift was, he says? He says it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And that's a reference to the Old Testament when they used to do some of their offerings and sacrifices and the aroma would fill the temple and fill the area outside the temple. And it was a pleasing aroma, and the language of worship is used here. So our question here that we want to ask in closing is, do you worship your money, or do you worship with your money? If all of this is an act of service and pleasing and giving, which of those categories would you fall in? Or what about this one? Do you use people for money, or do you use your money for people? These resources were given, and Paul's like, man, you know what, guys? I'm so excited. I'm so thankful. And you wonder, you think about that language of the wilting flower, somebody that needs to be refreshed, somebody that needs to be encouraged, and you get the idea that maybe these people, even out of their poverty, were able to give this to Paul, and that's the reason why he's so joyful. Why else would it be all the way from the beginning? Count it all joy. I'm so joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. You're like, dude, what is going on? You're in prison. You're um, famished. You're probably not well fed. You're not taken care of. You've got to be miserable. But Paul's saying, oh man, I was discouraged. I was wilting. 
But then I got the provision of God through your generosity. And that allowed me to be cheered up physically, emotionally, spiritually. You were the answer to my prayers to God. And my challenge for us this morning is what kind of church do we want to smell like? I'm serious, there it is, an aroma. Uh, Generosity, the aroma is beautiful and sweet and inviting. And on an individual level and on a corporate level and on a neighborly level, I want to have that kind of ministry to people and be generous and God will be honored and glorified through that. One final thought here. I love in verse 19, Paul just makes it so personal. Remember, Paul's experienced. Paul's had nothing. Paul's been beaten. Paul's been discouraged. But he makes it so personal for them, this church. He says, my God, this strong God that provided for me, this one who's been there with me, despite the shipwrecks and the beatings and the loneliness and everything else, yep, my God, my strong God will supply every need of yours. You supplied for me, my God's going to supply for you according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To God be the glory. So those could be financial needs. The people of Philippi, remember, they were poor. Or guess what? They could be spiritual needs as well. Remember all the issues. They were selfish. They needed to be humble. There was bickering. They needed grace and humility to work those things out. In chapter 3, there was people teaching false doctrines, right? He said, beware of the dogs and everything. They need the Holy Spirit's power to stand up and to teach what's right and to correct those false doctrines. Paul's saying, I serve a strong God. Whatever those needs are in your life, he's going to provide them. So I don't know where any of that lands on you guys here this morning. I don't know if the idea of generosity and the idea of a wilting plant causes a picture or a person to come in your mind that maybe the showers of blessing that God has brought to you, you can share with them. I will tell you on a personal level, studying this all week long has changed my lifestyle. My wife is up in Michigan. Her sister is adopting a baby, and she's up spending time with her and ministering to her and helping her. And so it's just been me and the kids rocking. And that's usually a pretty fun time. That's always a fun time. But, you know, they're into bowling, so, you know, they're like, hey, let's go bowling, and hey, let's go out to eat, hey, let's order pizza, let's do this, let's do that, let's do the other, and then, you know, I'm studying all this, and I'm like, contentedness, when is enough enough? And when I go out to eat, and I spend 20 or 30 or 40 dollars, what could that money have been used to bring water and refreshment and revival to somebody who's in need? What if... I took some of my wants and set them aside and instead met somebody else's need. That's what God's been convicting this guy of this week. And God gave us this book and this passage and these principles so that we might be a people so full of joy because we hold things loosely. So let's stand up together. I'm going to pray over us and pray for us. Our band's going to come on out here and we're going to close together with one voice singing about our great, strong God, and Father, I thank you for this family of Northwest Community Church. Lord, all the different stories that come together here every Sunday morning, even some that are here for the very first time, but Lord, I thank you that you have created church, and it was your idea 
that we come together and we sing and we talk about your word and, and we hear from you and we sing to you. But Lord, I just want to thank you as well for the overwhelming generosity that you have shown to us. The kind of generosity that most of the world could not even possibly fathom. And Lord, we just pray that just like that church at Philippi, we would be anxious and overflowing with joy for the opportunity to breathe life and vitality to somebody who's discouraged. Lord, I pray that stories would come out of this weekend. That stories would come out of people that said, you know, I wanted to be the answer to somebody's prayer that I didn't even know they were praying. I wanted to be the sharer of provision for something that, that I didn't even realize how deep the situation was. And Lord, may we be the kind of people and the kind of church that absolutely bewilder the world because of our generosity. We love you so much, God, and we thank you that you loved us first. And uh, Father, just be pleased as we sing to you. In your son's name. Amen.